Thanks to Shopify for supporting Future Hindsight. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs like myself the resources once reserved for big business. For a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com slash hopeful. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. The greatest challenge facing civic life, indeed facing all life on Earth, is the climate crisis. Earlier this year, the IPCC, that's the United Nations body for assessing the science related to climate change, released a series of reports that are hard to overstate in terms of the urgent five-alarm fire, wake-up-and-do-something message they sent. And yet, amidst war, pandemic, polarization, and, well, everything, the alarm bells did not ring loudly or for long in the media. Insert your scream into the void here, folks. How is this possible? How can we continue to shuffle toward an unlivable climate while not demanding the drastic and urgent action needed to confront the climate crisis and mitigate its impacts? Amy Westervelt has thought about these questions and tried to communicate their answers more than just about anyone I can think of. And crucially, she spent the month of April reading all 3,000 pages of the third report that was released, focusing on mitigations. Amy Westervelt is a climate journalist and the founder and executive producer of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. She hosts the Drilled and Hot Take podcasts. Amy, welcome to Future Hindsight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I think I want to start with the central premise of Future Hindsight here to take big ideas and turn them into action items, because I think one of the riddles of the response to climate change It's that we are inundated with messages that the climate crisis is too big and too hard and we can't do anything about it. And Mm. you've you've really drilled down, excuse the pun, on the (laughs) ways in which this messaging is actually part of a concerted campaign designed to stop us from taking action. Can you solve that riddle for us? The too big, too hard, we should probably give up riddle. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if I can solve it for (laughs) (laughs) I wish. But, you know, A, I think it's important for people to understand that every percentage of a degree matters. There's been this very swift, I think, response to this latest round of IPCC reports to say, okay, well, 1.5 is out the window. So this goal has come out of the Paris Climate Accord a few years ago that's trying to keep warming to 1.5 degrees or less, um, which the most recent IPCC reports are saying, like, okay, we're overshooting that goal right now. You know, <laughs> um, it's it's sort of hurtling out of reach. And I've seen so many people go, okay, forget 1.5 Let's focus on two degrees. Well, every point one of a degree between 1.5 and 2 is a meaningful difference to the number of people who stay alive, the number of species that stay alive, the stability of ecosystems, all of that. So I think it's really, really important for people to understand that actually like every little thing does make a difference. And I also think it's important for people to look at the other end of the spectrum that we're seeing in these IPCC reports, which is that the absolute worst of warming, so like the five, six degree hellscape that was outlined a few years ago, is almost entirely off the table at this point. So that's a tiny bit of good news. (laughs) (laughs) But the the big news in this in this report for me was this new chapter that they've added on what they call demand and services. So the idea there is that, look, when we talk about people in less developed countries needing energy, what we're actually talking about is the need for certain services like shelter and food and mobility and these, you know, kind of basic things. And you don't actually have to provide those in an emissions-heavy, fossil-fueled kind of way. And they really lay out a blueprint for that in terms of everything from 
you know, individual choices that people can make within existing systems to really pushing for the kinds of systemic changes that give everybody more options. So, for example, public transit. Take public transit if it's available to you. Push for public transit if it's not. These kind of very basic but very helpful things that could actually deliver uh, a 40 percent decrease in emissions while improving quality of life for everyone who's living in poverty around the world. If we can shift diets away from meat, not off of meat entirely, but maybe away from as meat heavy as they are in the global north at the moment and shift towards public transit and, you know, electrify things that they're basically what they were trying to do is lay out all the things that we have the technology to do right now if we did all of those things then we could reduce emissions by 40 percent so almost half of the emissions that we need to reduce we could do that just by taking advantage of all the things that already exist so those are the kinds of things that i think are are helpful to hang on to when you're feeling really overwhelmed about the climate crisis. It is really big and it is really overwhelming, but no one person has to do every single thing. You know, everyone has a role and everyone kind of needs to play that role. But if you get locked into this idea that you have to be working on all of the things all of the time, that's very paralyzing and not not super conducive to action. Right, right. We actually have the technologies that we need now. And we really just need to avail ourselves of them, both individually and systemically, which that's another kind of real key thing that comes up in this space all the time is this idea that we have to pit individual choices against systemic change. And I think, you know, it's a both and. Like, take the individual choices that you can and that are available to you and if you're able to push for for systemic change that gives more options to everybody, that's sort of like the key to <laughs> to achieving these things. Right. Like do all, do all the solutions, do everything here and there yeah. comprehensively. So I'd like to break down the IPCC reports, thousands of pages in three parts. You mentioned the demand chapter. But from all this year's reports, what are the key takeaways? I think, honestly, the biggest takeaway is really... We have everything we need to do what needs to be done. And the reasons that we're not doing it come down to political will and sort of corporate blocking of those things. We've kind of known this for a while, but this kind of batch of IPCC reports states it unequivocally that, look, the problem is not that we don't understand the science and it's not that we don't have the technology available to us. And it's not that we don't know what we need to do. It's that there are powerful states and powerful companies that are very reliant on the fossil fuel industry or money from fossil fuels that have been blocking those actions. So that to me seems like the really key challenge right now is removing those obstacles from action. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the things already available to us, right? Like when we talk about decarbonizing, what does that currently look like? What are the big things that we're already doing? I think it's important to note that the cost of renewable energy technology has dropped more rapidly than anyone really expected it to. So there is a pretty major shift towards clean energy that's happening right now. There is a shift towards electrification that's happening. I think it's important also to remember in the context of that, that electrification is not like zero impact on the environment. <laughs> you know, um, we're already starting to see what happens when you shift your dependency on fossil fuels to a dependency on lithium and other types of minerals and metals, right? So there's a kind of a cautionary tale that runs throughout actually the IPCC report too that's sort of reminding people, look, let's not make the same mistake again here. Let's look at this industry with an eye towards sustainability instead of extraction. But yeah, that's happening, right? The energy system is being decarbonized more rapidly than most people would have predicted even 10 years ago. You're also seeing a shift in the the transportation space 
towards electrification. There again, there's a caveat of, you know, a shift towards sort of personal transit being electrified by companies that are sometimes fighting against public transit, which is an inherently more climate-friendly option. So there's more, more work needed on that front. There is a huge potential to decarbonize via the food system. So that is something that I'm seeing people focus on more and more. The idea of shifting towards a more plant-based diet, improving the way that meat is produced and consumed, looking at more sustainable land use practices within the food system. All of that is a a big area of of opportunity for, for decarbonization. The other big one is reforestation. You know, not that planting a million trees is going to solve climate change, as a lot of people have have tended to suggest. But reforestation is a key carbon removal strategy. And it's one that there again, you know, we're able to do now and not kind of wait for technology on. So those are the big areas that are available to us now and that are being utilized now and just kind of need even more uptake. Right. Yeah. Especially, you know, I just read an article yesterday about the deforestation in Brazil has just continued Mm -hmm. at a more rapid pace and it's just heartbreaking. It's like, hello, you know, it's 2022 and here we are. But I know know. (laughs) it's it's yeah, it's crazy. So what does decarbonization need to look like in the near future in terms of policy? I think that as a really low-hanging fruit kind of idea, we could stop subsidizing fossil fuels. We really need to stop the build-out of fossil fuels immediately. Like, that's that's not even a fringy idea. That's not just something that environmentalists say. You have the International Energy Agency, historically a very conservative, very pro-fossil fuel organization, saying we cannot have new fossil fuel projects. So I think that's step one from a, a policy perspective. And unfortunately, right now, the United States is doing the opposite. We have seen the Russia invasion of Ukraine used as a lever to get all kinds of great policy wins for the fossil fuel industry in the last couple months. So that's really unfortunate. Um, In addition to sort of ending fossil fuel development and fossil fuel subsidies, you need more support for renewable energy. So, like, people talk about the Build Back Better plan in the U.S. and whether or not it could do anything at this point to address the climate crisis, which is looking less and less likely every week. But there is one tiny policy thing in there that I think is important to think about, which is basically – that it sort of removes some of the blocks to incentivizing utilities to invest in renewable energy. I think people forget sometimes that utilities have been a big problem on this front as well. It's not just fossil fuel companies. Utilities have tended to be a real ally to the fossil fuel industry on climate. And a big part of that is that the way that policy has been structured around renewable energy has made it not super incentivized for utilities to embrace renewables. Those are some easy administrative fixes, really. Um, You know, enabling utilities to make back their investments on renewables and incentivizing them to go that route. And I'm hoping that even in the absence of a massive package like Build Back Better, that there are some of these like tiny wonky fixes that the federal government could make to energy policy in general that would incentivize a shift towards renewables. We'll see if they're able to do that given the current context, but that would be huge. I think incentivizing and supporting public transit from a policy perspective would be fantastic. And you have like multiple wins there. You see a public health benefit when public transit is supported. 
you see a, a productivity and work benefit. So there's an economic benefit there and you see emissions reductions. So more of what Dr. Beth Sowen calls multi-solving <laughs> solutions where you're able to make one policy move that delivers results on multiple levels, I think would be would be great to see more of and tend to be easier sells to the public because you're not just delivering something as purely an emissions reduction fix. It's like, oh, this makes your costs go down, it improves health, and it makes your life more convenient. There's no reason to oppose it. Right, right. Yeah, I think there are a lot of messaging issues, <laughs> I think, when it comes yes. to selling these public policies. And we're just they're just not as good as the fossil fuel industry's messaging. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the attempts to message around Build Back Better were miserable. I miserable, think, you know, yes. it was like super in the weeds and really hard to understand, and it sounded really expensive. And right, all the fossil fuel industry had to say was like, "This is so expensive, and this is just a fringe climate policy." You know, <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of which, well, let's backtrack a little bit to the decision that the administration made in fact, to build more fossil fuel infrastructure in the yeah. wake of the war in Ukraine. And to me, I was like, what, what's happening? Why are we not investing in renewables in the name of national security? This would have been like right. a super easy sell. But talk to us a little yeah. bit about like what happened, because I think not a lot of people know what happened. Oh, God. It's so it's really wild to watch because um, actually I'm, I'm working on a story right now that's pegged to some new research about exactly this issue of of how did how did the fossil fuel industry capitalize on this so quickly? <laughs> right. Know? How did they do it? It's amazing. So, I mean, the answer is preparation. They were they were really starting in you know January. Even they were starting to reach out to the White House about, you know, if there are going to be sanctions against Russia, what they would feel comfortable with. Because people forget that we kind of had this situation back in 2014 with Crimea. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is pretty much a repeat of that scenario. And the fossil fuel industry really kind of lost out during that invasion. So you saw... Exxon really lose their shirt on a bunch of fossil fuel investments in Russia. You saw stiff sanctions really impact the industry and commodity pricing across the board, all kinds of things. They weren't prepared for that one. So in the wake of that, they thought through, OK, if this happens again, what is our response going to be? And you really saw them roll out that response very early on. Day one of Putin invading Ukraine, the American Petroleum Institute was on social media telling people, see, this is why we need a strong American energy industry and framing this totally false messaging that somehow some aggressive climate policy from the Biden administration that nobody else knew about was keeping them from producing enough oil and gas to, to help out in this situation. So they were out there taking hold of the narrative on social media and on cable news very early. And what you see in some new research coming out from Influence Map, which is a group in the UK that looks at lobbying and advertising from corporations and how that impacts policy, they were able to put together a report that shows the fossil fuel industry kind of having a, a two-week time span from like messaging launch to policy change. That's incredible. <laughs> so fast. So fast. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's like it's unheard of. You know, yeah. no one else has that kind of juice. So, I mean, what that tells me is just like, look, this industry is still very powerful. They're very strategic and very well resourced. And I, I think there's been a little bit of a sense in the, the climate universe that, oh, as the market changes and as there's, you know, public opinion shifting against them and all of these things that that all that all of this will sort of naturally make the fossil fuel industry weaker. And I just don't think that that's true. They're very strong and they're going to fight as long and as hard as they can. So yeah, they were able to get control of the narrative really quickly so that, I mean, by like week two of this invasion, 
I didn't see any media questioning the idea that American gas and oil was good for national security, that the most important thing was the price at the pump, and that the things that they were asking for would actually impact gas prices. That's a really key thing, too. All the stuff they're asking for is long term. None of it is short term. None of it has any impact at all on the prices that Americans are paying at the pump. But they successfully convinced everyone that they did. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Like, people don't realize that crude oil is a global commodity <laughs> that is right. traded actively and has nothing exactly. to do with whether we have oil or not. That's right. And that, like, production that increases now is not going to impact that market for at, at a minimum six months, you know. So, yeah, all of that has been very frustrating to watch and, and also is really, like, it's to me, it made me think about the the conversation about nationalizing oil and gas companies, which is like very fraught and, you know, really freaks people out in, in this country in particular. But to me, I look at that situation and I'm like, OK, if you had some kind of government involvement in the oil industry in this Russia-Ukraine situation, you could feasibly increase production and actually have it be a limited short-term thing versus what has happened, which is that the fossil fuel industry was like, well, we're only going to increase production if you can guarantee us demand until 2030. And they did. This is this whole deal that Biden signed with the EU is locking in this production level that they're increasing right now f- until 2030, which has absolutely nothing to do with immediate needs in Europe. You know, And what we know from history is that the fossil fuel industry has never just reduced production because demand has gone down. You can see that domestically in the U.S. right now. We've actually reduced our consumption of fossil fuels in the transportation and building sectors. And their response to that has been to push and create and manufacture a new demand for more plastic. Um, It Mm -hmm. has not been, oh, I guess we'll produce less. No, that's not what they do. So... Yeah, it's unfortunate to see. And I think it just is another indication that look, it's going to require actually forcing the issue with these companies. There's no world in which they are just going to make the decision to shift to renewables and like discard their assets. Yes. Well, those are. Assets, you know, they invested a lot of money in those things. So, you know, from their point of view, of course, I totally get that. But here's a question that I don't know whether you can answer this or if anybody can. How is it that the Biden administration actually agreed to this? I felt like this was low-hanging fruit, (laughs) you know, to be like, actually, in the name of national security, we are going to double down on solar and wind and whatever other technology we have. And then instead they did this. And I thought, oh, what? Why? It's wild because it's it's really – it's so interesting to look at because you actually saw, I think, for the first time, a lot of the public sort of realizing that – And dependency on fossil fuels is inherently not secure. But for some reason, the administration, you know, went the opposite direction entirely and even had, I mean, there was that like ridiculous hearing that they had where they hauled in all of the the oil and gas executives to kind of browbeat them for high gas prices and ended up with like a bunch of Democrats imploring oil and gas executives to produce more oil and gas. <laughs> yes, yes. So perverse. It's like, no. Or, you know, to to allow the ethanol blend gasoline right. sale this summer, which actually produces more smog in hot weather. It's like, no, right. we're, we're going in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's very much the wrong direction. So honestly, I think that... The Biden administration and a large segment of the Democratic Party in general is just operating in a world that doesn't exist anymore. I really think that, like, they're playing this political game and not realizing that the math has changed. I think that they think, oh, well, we don't want to be seen as, you know, putting climate policy above price at the pump and have just totally seeded that narrative to the industry and think that being friendly to oil and gas will win them votes come November. And I just think they're wrong. And I think that they're not understanding how much 
the context has changed or that climate is just not the same as other political issues. I, I see politicians talk about this all the time in the same way that they'll talk about healthcare policy or transportation policy. Those are all situations where like if you lose one fight, it's okay. Like you'll you'll live to fight another day and you can come back to the drawing board and make incremental change and all of those things. It's not the same with climate. And I, I just don't think that there's an understanding of that in that administration or in the Democratic Party in general, which is not to say that like Democrats are just as bad as Republicans or any of these things that people <laughs> that people throw out. Like, I do think there's a difference between politicians that feel like they need to do something on climate and politicians that don't think they have to do anything at all. But unfortunately, there again, like actually when it comes to climate, both are bad. We're taking a quick break to thank our sponsor. And when we come back, Amy's going to explain why the fossil fuel industry has invested so heavily in cultural and academic institutions. Another frontier for decarbonization. But first... Oh, that sound makes me smile. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify. Shopify is the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. For a free 14-day trial, go to shopify.com hopeful, all lowercase. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving you the resources once reserved for big business, customized for you. With a great-looking online store that brings your idea to life and tools to manage and drive sales. Shopify powers millions of entrepreneurs from first sale to full scale. Access powerful tools to help you find customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. -day. Gain knowledge and confidence with resources to help you succeed. Get started by building and customizing your online store with no coding or design experience. I love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to successfully run your own business. With 24-7 support, you're never alone. And every 28 seconds, a small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash hopeful, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash hopeful right now. We also want to tell you about the Cube app, the one and only curated app of music and podcasts by Black, Brown, and QT Pop creators. Check it out at thecube.app. Are you looking for a new podcast by a Black, Brown, or QT Pop creator? Are you finding it impossible to find your people? It's all good. We got you with the Cube, the one and only curated app of music and podcasts by Black, Brown, and QT Pop creatives. Get into it. Visit thecube.app, that's T-H-E-Q-U-B-E dot app, and sign up for our newsletter so you'll be the first one to know when the app drops. The Cube, your new favorite podcasting app for BIPOC and QTPOC content. Let's return to our conversation with Amy Westerfeld. There is another kind of decarbonization challenge that goes beyond energy supply and infrastructure, which is the way in which carbon fuel interests are intertwined with our governmental academic, and even cultural institutions. And a lot of this work is not visible to the naked eye, but has been a central focus of the work that you do. So could you help us see it and shine a light on where these interests are lurking and what's forcing the issue on all these fronts might look like? Yeah, I, I think this is an important thing to look at because people often look at climate accountability and think, oh, you just want to beat up on oil companies or you just want to have someone to blame for this problem. And to me, I look at it as, no, I want to really understand how 
we got to this place where a fairly small group of people have locked us into decisions that impact the whole world very negatively. <laughs> you know, like how do you get how do you get there and how do you start to solve that problem in a way that doesn't land us in a similar place 100 years from now. So, I think that there's been a real focus on climate science denial in this space and how fossil fuel interests have kind of captured some of the scientific debate and, and how they peddled for a long time this idea that the science was uncertain. And even some are still saying, well, we're not sure it's actually as urgent as you're making it out to be and all of that kind of stuff. And that's all very relevant and important. But to me, the bigger issue is just how entrenched that industry has been in shaping the way that we think about economics, the way that we conceive of of sort of the American way of life, the way that we think about the political system and what's possible within it. The fossil fuel industry has been extremely involved in funding academic research since at least the 1920s. And that's not just on the scientific front. In fact, a lot of their investments are to economics programs and law schools and public policy schools. And the whole idea there is to shape really like the context of policymaking. So it's not just that they are lobbying Congress all the time and that they give money to lots of different politicians, which all of that is also true. <laughs> but it's also that they fund a lot of the information and the thought leadership and white papers and all of that stuff that policymaking draws from. So, you know, when you start to look at that, you start to realize, oh, wow, they're actually involved in so much of the fabric of society that disentangling from that industry has a ton of follow-on effects. Like, where are universities going to get that funding from if it's not from fossil fuel companies, you know, which I had one um, student who's working on this say, well, I would rather there be less research overall than to have half of it funded by oil companies. Um, so that's, that's a fair point. But yeah, just I, the level to which they are involved in, in shaping not just our understanding of the problem, but the context in which we're even allowed to think about solutions, it's troubling. And I think that that's why you see such a narrow imagination around solutions. Like, you know, even in the clean energy space, people can't really think outside of just replacing the energy source with something different. That's why, actually, I think this chapter in the IPCC report on demand was really groundbreaking <laughs> because they really were kind of like, what if we put aside the the society that the fossil fuel industry has told us we're allowed to have and thought about what people actually need and, and looked at, there's this research out of Yale called the Decent Living Energy Index where they've looked at, okay, if we're going to give everyone in the world a, a comfortable life in terms of, you know, access to enough food and shelter and transportation and all these kinds of things, like how do we do that in a low emissions way? How do we do it in a way that's divorced from the fossil fuel industry? That kind of thinking is still relatively new in part because of how much that industry has colonized academia and the whole political realm. So when we talk about climate being really more an issue of political will than technology or science, that's the thing that we need to get at. Is is I like the idea that <laughs> that you propose there of decarbonizing those spaces as well because they're they're just so tightly integrated into so many of the areas that we need to be able to even come up with solutions. They're involved in like venture funding too. So a lot of like these new, you know, clean tech. You know, yes, they're everywhere. They're pretending, pretending to exactly. be doing things that they're not exactly. doing. I mean, yeah. they're not really pretending because they're giving them the money. But right. it, it's like chump change for them, right? Because the, yeah. the big thing in the back that's still running produces so much that whatever they spend on these initiatives is, you know, negligible, but it greenwashes oh, yeah. their reputation. 
Exactly. I think it, the the most recent numbers are the the company that's investing the most is BP, and it's still less than five percent of their capital expenditure in anything other than fossil fuel development. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's meaningless. I mean, it's not meaningless, but it's meaningful for them because, you know, it provides cover. Right. It's meaningless for their bottom line. So, right. yeah. That's but, right. <laughs> yeah. I have a thought there about your student who said we might do less research. But maybe, you know, when you think about it, what you were saying before, maybe we would do different research, kind of like the research that right. Yale does. And then maybe we would have different kinds of outcomes and different solutions, you know, in right. a way that we couldn't have conceived as long as we were still in the growth mindset that we need an economy that grows perpetually, which is completely unrealistic. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the other the other thing that they're really involved in is culture, the way that they've sort of invested in creating and maintaining the social license to operate is very, um, it's just interesting. Like Shell Oil is funding Jazz Fest, you know, half of the museums in the country have funding coming from oil companies in one form or another. So they, I don't know, they really embed themselves in society in a way that makes it hard for people to to criticize them or not take their money. Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. Mm -hmm. So I have a question about your most recent season of Drilled. Uh, It focuses on so-called renewable natural gas, which is (laughs) one of the great misnomers, like a kind of linguistic greenwashing. Brilliant. It's brilliant. They're very smart. They're very smart. (laughs) They are. And so there have been some strides in regulating natural gas, but there has also been serious pushback from the oil and gas industry. What's Mm -hmm. the latest with that? Give us like a good state, bad state rundown. Yeah, it's been really interesting. So just in the last few years, uh, the kind of electrify everything movement has been pushing to legislate less gas in new buildings in particular. So that's been a big push. And they had some early success. They actually kind of caught the gas industry on the back foot a little bit in a way that doesn't tend to happen that much. But they, they kind of quickly recovered and they have passed preemptive bans on gas bans in 18 or 19 states now. And a big part of that push has been renewable natural gas. So this is gas that is coming from sort of captured methane from industrial agriculture, so concentrated animal feed operations or giant hog lots and or landfills. And, you know, I'm not opposed to capturing methane wherever it's coming, but the most generous estimates are that renewable natural gas could only ever supply about 16% of the demand for energy. So what they're doing is they're using this kind of amazing sounding zero emissions, as they call it, alternative solution to lock in gas infrastructure that will mostly have the regular old gas flowing through it and a small percentage of renewable natural gas. So they're presenting this to a lot of state and local governments as a free choice option that enables an even better renewable solution in the form of of renewable natural gas to fuel buildings. And, you know, I I, like six months ago, I would have said it was it was pretty evenly split because you had kind of an even number of, of states pushing to ban gas as you had states preempting those kinds of bans. And that's still technically the case. But I think that this big Russia-Ukraine driven turn towards more natural gas is changing the math a little bit again. I think the industry is is once again trotting out the bridge fuel narrative that you know natural gas is this handy partner to uh, clean energy. And I mean, you're seeing just a massive boom again in all of the the big fracking fields. I was just talking to someone who was out in the Permian Basin in Texas last week who was like, yeah, it's like the most wells I've ever seen. So that's unfortunate because there again, you know, they're going to find a market for that gas. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. yeah. For sure. <laughs> Which, you, I mean, you're seeing that in the plastic realm, too, right? Yeah. Like, there's a huge build-out of these ethane crackers. So, you know, we're now making plastic with ethane, which is a byproduct of fracking. And there's a huge boom because it's cheaper than petroleum. And the fossil fuel industry has laid out in, you know, every company's annual reports. They're saying, like, don't worry about what's happening in buildings and cars because we have this this plastic plan. Um, <laughs> right. I think a lot of people don't understand that plastic is made from fossil fuels. Yeah, that's still a really big gap for some reason. Even in the climate space, I'm convinced, I haven't found proof of this yet, but I'm convinced that there was some kind of like concerted effort to get climate people to think that plastic wasn't their problem. Because I still hear that even from diehard climate advocates that um, they're just not clocking that plastic is part of that. I think that's starting to shift a little bit as you're seeing more and more focus on Exxon and Shell in particular getting involved in plastic. I mean, Exxon, there was a report out last year that showed that Exxon is the number one producer in the world of plastic. What? Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> that's news Number to one. Number yeah. one. Well, it shouldn't surprise me, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy? So they're the top they're the top producer of single-use plastics right now. It's very similar to like the Carbon Majors report. There was this report that that showed that 100 companies make 90% of all of the plastic in the world and and Axon tops that list. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Yes, we need to yeah. outlaw producing plastic, not tell consumers to stop mm-hmm. using plastic, because that's that's right. really where it originates, because they're going to find a market to use the plastic, to your point, right? Exactly. Like, you know, they're going to create a market because they have the supply. Right, exactly. That's the that, And that was like a big, big thing that the, this IPCC report hammered on a few times, although unfortunately not in like the summaries that a lot of people pick up, but definitely throughout the pages of the reports themselves is that, look, this idea that the fossil fuel industry is just 100% driven by demand is not true. It's a supply-driven market at this point. This is a product that's looking for a market, not the other way around. Yeah. Fascinating. Who knew, right? Like this would upend economics as we know it, right? But yeah. because, <laughs> never yeah. mind supply and demand graphs, you know, it's it's just one way. So uh, I want to turn to a big idea that we kind of started with. And that is, uh, I think the climate crisis is a democracy problem, too. I mean, yes, so more climate instability leading to more food precarity, scarcity, energy, or even water wars competition over dwindling resources, fueling populist and nationalist movements, and strongman autocrats, which we've seen, of course. So, But can you talk to us about how climate action could also reinvigorate democracy? Do you think that's possible? I definitely think it's possible. I, I actually see community as sort of the key to solving climate. And it's also key to democracy, right, is, is equality, community organizings, community strength, all of that stuff. It's sort of like this triple benefit thing that is kind of like what we need to survive the climate crisis. It's what we need to address the climate crisis. And it's what gives us actual democracy. You know, So yeah, I really, really um, hope that the climate movement will, in the years ahead, really, really embrace the idea that protecting democracy is climate action, that protecting votes and and pushing back against voter suppression is absolutely critical to climate action. You can't pass anything if you are not protecting people's votes. That's just the way it is. And yes, I do think that we are going to see climate impacts erode democracy. I mean, you're already seeing it. Like, I I remember people along, like, maybe 10 years ago saying, oh, the, you know, conservative anti-climate people are going to jump straight from climate denial to eco-fascism. And I think we're already seeing that. You're already seeing people use climate as a justification for anti-immigration policy. And as a, a sort of reason to batten down the hatches on all kinds of resources, right? So, yeah, I really, I think democracy is pretty fundamental to taking any kind of action on climate. And I think it needs to be 
protected, like I said, not just to enable us to act on it, but also to enable us to survive it. Right. Yes, we need to survive it. So what are two things everyday people could be doing to take climate action? I think it really depends on who those people are and where they live. So like I often talk about the need to sort of become your own climate guidance counselor, <laughs> you know, like what what's needed in your community and what skills do you have? And again, I think this comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning here that like if you think of it in terms of having to tackle everything yourself all at once, that's never going to work. So I would say think about what's needed in your community and where you're uniquely suited to help. And I also think that building community is really, really important. So if that's just talking to your friends and family about this issue, that's helpful. You know, if it's taking part in a mutual aid effort in your community, that's helpful. Anything you can do to strengthen ties within your community is going to be helpful both for organizing and for resilience. And I I think it's like kind of a low ask. It doesn't require a huge amount of of time or money or, or energy, and it makes you feel good. So I think that's a good one. And especially for Americans, because I feel like we have this huge sort of cultural inheritance around individualism and this hero narrative and all of that stuff. When I talk to youth climate activists, the thing that I hear them say the most is that being part of a group is like a huge relief to them, (laughs) That, that they don't feel that like they can't take a break when they need to because they know there's this whole group of people who are also working together on this issue. So yeah, I would say like, try to to find and build and strengthen your community and then also think about what are you uniquely suited to do and like how does that fit into what your community needs all good advice so here's my last question there's a lot of good climate action you know and the ipcc report actually i think is terrific and calling out the bad actors in some sense you know trying to upend the way that we think about the supply and demand of fossil fuels. So looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I would say that the thing that's making me hopeful most recently is actually the advancements on rights of nature. (laughs) So this is a, a legal concept that gives ecosystems legal rights, which I feel like people in this country almost across the board, like, we'll immediately be like, oh, what do you mean? Like, trees have rights? And then I remind them that corporations have human rights and, like, it starts to make more sense. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's right. Corporations are people, my friend. Is that not what Mitt Romney said? (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, So you're seeing the thing that's really interesting to me about rights of nature right now is that the wins that we're seeing on rights of nature in the U.S. are all in conservative states. And that is very interesting to me because I think there's a way that rights of nature appeals to a sort of libertarian, like, self-reliance, community control kind of mindset that gets around some of the politicization of climate. So I think one key example is in Pennsylvania where you're starting to see some towns embrace what's called home rule, which is a law that's on the books in Pennsylvania and I believe also Texas and Arizona that allows communities to basically like kick the state out of their affairs. So, you know, it definitely appeals to a particular type of conservative, but is also being used to impose limits on fracking that everyone has said forever is not possible in Pennsylvania, (laughs) you know? So I think it's interesting to see that idea take hold in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida. These are not states that I would have expected 10 years ago to see embracing rights of nature. And I think it's actually kind of freaking the industry out because it's not happening in, you know, San Francisco or New York or wherever. It's happening in the Rust Belt. So they're they're Where starting they're to living mobilize. with fracking. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the the industry is starting to kind of mobilize and try to pass preemptive legislation to block rights of nature. But when I talked to activists in Ohio, they were like 
that's an illegitimate law. Like we're we're just ignoring that. <laughs> I was like, yes, I love it. Um, they're like, I mean, we have a history in this country of not just like accepting, you know, illegitimate laws. So we're just like finding ways around that, which I love. And again, I'm like, see, this is actually has like broad appeal across the political spectrum <laughs> um, in a way that, you know, passing like an emissions reduction policy unfortunately doesn't. That's the political reality that we're living in. But this, I, I feel like, is interesting. And, you know, internationally, too, like there were some big wins on rights of nature in Ecuador recently. There's a huge integration of rights of nature with indigenous sovereignty that I think is really, really interesting. And, I think necessary to to push for real climate solutions. So so yeah, that's that's the area that I'm I'm feeling some amount of of optimism in. Excellent. Well, I love I love this idea of rights of nature and, you know, to your point that it's happening in in red states where people are living, you know, side by side with the effects of fracking in their neighborhoods, which is incredibly right. unpleasant to live with, which people don't realize. Um, it's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And they're like, like it's really... we don't want to live like this anymore. Yeah. It's made them realize like, oh, this is why it's important to have some kind of a, an idea of like the commons. This one person I talked to in Pennsylvania was like, yeah, you know, at first everyone here was was sort of like, well, just do whatever you want with your land. It's your decision. And then they quickly realized that if everyone does that, then a large number of people are going to be unfairly impacted by something that their neighbor decides to do, right? Um, so it got them thinking about, oh, well, wait a minute. This water source is kind of all of ours that we need and that we need to be able to protect. So it's interesting to me because I'm like, oh, that's that's awesome because someone could come at this from the standpoint of like property value or like a deep respect for nature. And it doesn't really matter <laughs> what's driving them because the result is that this resource gets protected. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, thank you very much, Amy for being yeah. on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed this so much. And it's been like a really wonderful conversation that's really wide ranging. Yeah, Thank thanks you. for having me. That hour just flew by. I yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, it really did. It really did. <laughs> Amy Westervelt is a climate journalist and the founder and executive producer of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. She hosts the Drilled and Hot Take Podcasts. Next week on Future Hindsight, I'm joined by Jeff Clements, the president of American Promise. Their goal is to rectify the ills of the Citizens United decision and rid our politics of dark money once and for all with a constitutional amendment. Because it is so systemically damaging to democracy and it's happening so quickly that it's hard to see. So we've just had a few election cycles since 2010. It has doubled every election cycle. So 2016, to 2020 doubled. We're now like $15 billion elections. Senate races that in 2010, the five most expensive Senate races, they were like 10 million. They're now over $200 million. And most of that money coming from a donor class. Jeff Clements on putting the big money genie back in the bottle after Citizens United. That's next week on Future Hindsight. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Zara Birmingham. Until next time, Stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.